Bruzevan Barnhart is an associate professor of American literature and culture at the University of Oslo and co-director of the project Literature, Rights, and Imagined Communities. He is the author of Jazz in the Time of the Novel, The Temporal Politics of American Race and Culture. His work has appeared in African American Review, Kalaloo, and Novel. His latest publications are Temporal Experiments, Seven Ways of Configuring Time in Art and Literature, co-edited with Marit Krata and Leroy Jones, Jazz and the Resonance of Class. His research interests include African-American literature, post-Marxist theory, jazz, and Caribbean aesthetics. Bruce Evan Barnard, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What drew you to jazz and also its confluence and influence on literature? Well, I remember just hearing jazz, not at a super young age, but when I was in junior high school and being totally gripped by it. And so before I went and got my PhD in literature and became an academic, I got a music degree. I thought I was going to become a musician, but you know how difficult that is. So that was always in my background. And then when I started to think about how to write on American literature from the 20s and 30s, particularly the Harlem Renaissance, then the musical training, my love for jazz came back in. And that's when I wrote Jazz in the Time of Novel, or at least the first draft of it that I turned in for my dissertation. You know, this idea that uh, the novel encodes a certain kind of form, and then if we get jazz and the novel together, as we do in the 20s and 30s, then we get a certain kind of hybrid form of a very future-oriented uh, temporality based on the novel and a certain kind of rhythmic embrace for the present based upon the jazz. A lot of academics don't have that background in the arts first, like it comes from a theoretical angle. And how do you right. feel that the music has influenced your style and also perspective on the world? Well, I don't know if it has influenced my writing style or not. I mean, I would like to think so, because that would be cool. And I really admire James Baldwin, who always talks about jazz as a kind of model for his writing style. But as an influence on the way I see the world, I think it's quite profound, especially in terms of seeing the social world. The big problem we have in all sorts of different places around the world is how to coordinate difference, right? All sorts of people have different modes of living and different cultural rhythms and different ideas about the future. And jazz is brilliant at a lot of things, but it puts together different people and allows them to retain their own sense of time and rhythm while playing together at the same time. So it's a really profound model of social coordination. Now, of course, it says something particularly pressing about the United States, but I think as a model for how differences go together, I think it's perhaps unparalleled. Yeah, it's really beautiful to, to think. I mean, of course, it's an influence during the periods that you write about. You talk about Harlem Renaissance, you know, in those very important periods. But even up to this moment in time, I think that there are a lot of things about a spirit of openness and improvisation, elements, of course, uh, protest and an assertion. But this way that I understand from speaking and, you know, from your research as well and your own practice, the way jazz musicians coordinate and listen and, and are able to tune into each other, I think that this, in a way, is something that we are lacking in these times. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, there's all sorts of fantastic things in the music. But, you know, if we could think about the music as a model for social form or social interaction, I mean, it really lets one get away from fixed assumptions about the present and the future and really attunes one to other people. Right? And so you're not dependent upon, if you follow a jazz model, a fixed conception of progress or a calendar. You're dependent upon other people. Right? And other people are flexible and I mean, sometimes disappointing, but sometimes surprising in, in fantastic ways. So if you take this model of jazz temporality and coordination, it really suggests a, a kind of another way of organizing social life. And one I think that is important and productive in all sorts of different ways. And you mentioned uh, James Baldwin. Could you go into that a little more about how jazz was interwoven or was a part of his style? Yeah, I mean, there's an interview where he says, you know, I'm, I've helplessly modeled myself on jazz musicians. And so it's there kind of sometimes thematically in some of his novels, particularly Another Country. But if you read his interviews, it's kind of everywhere. It saturates his style. He thinks of it as something like a philosophy of existence. And of course, the famous example is when he's trying to write his first novel and he's holed up in a Swiss village. He's stuck. He can't create anything. 
but he's got a stack of Bessie Smith records. And so then listening to Bessie Smith sing and the cadence and rhythm of her voice opened up a possibility for him writing, you know, fiction and about his own life at the same time. But the best, I think, Baldwin writing on jazz, at least in the fictional realm, is this short story called Sonny's Blues. And I think most people know it pretty well, but it's about how these two brothers can reconcile. Right? And they're very different. And the older brother is the narrator. And he says something like, the age difference between us is like a chasm, right? And he wondered if it could ever be a bridge, right? And so that idea of making the age difference into a bridge, I think is something very jazz-like. Right? It's not saying, let's bring us together so that we're the same. We have this difference, but many wonders, could this difference ever be a bridge? And I think that's the question that jazz asks. And of course it answers it and it says, yes, right? It can be a bridge and it can be just kind of an ecstatic and profound celebration of human art and the shaping of not only musical structures, but as I've said, social structures. So how can difference be a bridge? I think is that question that Baldwin asks thematically in that short story. And then jazz answers it. And so Baldwin, I mean, of course, is a different time period than my book was about. But I think of him as a very crucial figure for anybody who wants to think about jazz and its importance. You were asking me actually about how jazz informs the way in which I write and think about things. Think that having the practice of performing music and knowing how the different forms work together, it allows you to write about it in a certain way. But I think that not enough people write about music. And I would encourage all sorts of people who don't even have musical expertise to think about music and write through it because James Baldwin didn't have any musical expertise. He was not trained in piano or trombone or anything. And yet, right, by listening carefully to the music and thinking about its implications, he wrote these incredibly insightful things. And that's true. Toni Morrison, I guess Ralph Ellison did have some musical training, but I think one shouldn't let a lack of musical expertise dissuade one from really considering the importance of certain jazz performances. Indeed. Yeah, of course, technique is so important when you're performing. But again, so many musicians and writers, those are both art forms that draw on the improvisational. Sometimes there's a, having too much knowledge or too much technique. Sometimes, you know, this something is just like in our bones or in our spirit and you don't know why. The why of it isn't up here, you know, in the mind, but in, in the heart and it's something remembered and true. Yeah, certainly if you rely too much on technique or a certain kind of conceptual scheme rather than the kind of physical sensuality of the musical forms in front of you, then you lose something. I think uh, Charles Mingus, at a certain point in the 1960s, he wouldn't give his musicians sheet music. He would just play the things. He's like, here, listen to it and then repeat it. And so for him, that was important because it got them away from thinking too conceptually and then thinking more in terms with the kind of material reality, the sensualist material reality of music itself. Yes, and I think on that note, I don't know if it's true, it's famously, it was Louis Armstrong, the scat was born because the sheet music dropped or wasn't there. And then we have this kind of new free form. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, there's some question about what story is, but it says something important, whether it's true or not about, you know, accident or the surprise or what I would like to call the contingent. And so one of the things that I think is just brilliant about Louis Armstrong's music and the music of that period and of later periods is contingency is not a problem. It's something to be celebrated, right? And so if you expect the drummer to be somewhere and you plan a phrase and then all of a sudden the drummer does something differently, in another musical form, you might panic or think of it as a failure, but in jazz, that's an opportunity. Right? So it's a great music for thinking about the shifting contingent nature of the real world of time. Time is contingent and jazz celebrates that fact. And I think a lot of other art forms actually, you know, want to suppress it, like put a certain kind of fixed order on time or rhythm or temporal form. So I think that's a great story for thinking about, oh, there's an accident, something surprising, but, you know, the jazz musician makes of it an opportunity. Yes. And just if you could go a little bit into the treatment of, say, time in the novel, time in jazz, it's a different treatment of time. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I get at. And it, of course, it's hard to generalize about the novel as a form because there are so many different instantiations of novel. There's so many great novels. But in general, 
especially when thinking about the early 20th century, you would say that the novel has a certain kind of idea of progressive development built into it. When you read the novel, it's as if you can kind of feel that sharp edge of the end of the novel. Right? You know there's an ending coming, and you don't know exactly what the ending is going to be, but you know that it's going to link everything up and it all makes sense. Right? So it trains you to kind of lean towards the future in a certain way. You read an individual event, but you're kind of storing it away. You're saying, oh, this will be important later. And so then everything has this kind of horizon of the future towards it. Right? And so you, you're, you train yourself in reading a novel to take individual events and link them all to future redemption or something like that. Where jazz does not do that. It has a certain kind of repetition in it. And when something, you know, interesting happens in the moment, it is enjoyed for itself. It's not necessarily going to be picked up later or incorporated into an overall form, but it just is a contingent event that has its own density and beauty to it in the moment. Thinking about the different roots in the treatment of time and expectations, as you were saying, whether it's going back to some like African rhythms or the different elements that go into jazz that make this kind of alchemy. Can you expand upon those to help us understand, you know, the creation of jazz? Yeah, there's a great deal of debate about when exactly jazz started, but it's clearly something that's emerging either the very last decade of the 19th century or the first two decades of the 20th century. And there's also a great deal of debate about how much kind of what they call African retentions are alive in the music. And I think they're there, and I think they're very important, particularly when you hear the ways in which a singer like Bessie Smith will bend the notes in a blues performance, and also a certain kind of performance of rhythm. It's not necessarily truly polyrhythmic, but it has a kind of polyrhythmic to it. So even though it's a straightforward 4-4, four, four, it feels as if it's veering towards 3 against 4 or something like that. So there are those elements in it. But if I was asked about the origin of jazz, I would think more about African-American history than about African history. Of course, that's important too. But what you have in this period is a mass movement of African-Americans out of rural areas and into urban areas. And of course, this is crucial for the Harlem Renaissance. So you've got you know, people coming from a certain kind of rural sense of time right, to a certain kind of urban sense of time, right, which is different. Right? And they're thinking about how, you know, in, in a city, you live alongside of all sorts of different people. Right? And so there's a greater need to kind of think about how all these different rhythms or lives go together. And I think jazz responds to that. So I would say if we wanted to think about the history of jazz, we'd think about this sharp demographic movement of tens of thousands of African-Americans out of rural areas into urban areas. And, you know, I don't want to go on too long, but you say, if we're thinking about the 20s as a period in which all sorts of different things in both African-American culture and American culture change. Now, 1920 is the first time that the United States is more urban than rural, right? So, you know, there's something about this changing notion of time, and it's not just about living in a city, but it is about like people moving into a city and thinking about, oh, well, what kind of forms of living together do we need? What kind of forms of social coordination do we need? And jazz responds to that. Absolutely. Right? It's thinking about different people fitting together. And of course, jazz is a very urban music. And we think about, of course, the centers like Chicago and Los Angeles and New Orleans and New York City as these centers for jazz. So I think that moment in history is kind of more urbanization and a setting aside of all the assumptions about how time and life unfold in rural settings versus how do we cope with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds, speaking with different accents, all living together in the same social space. Now, that, I think, is really important and really interesting. I know it's not directly the period that you focus on, but as you reflect on jazz today, you're talking about, you know, historically a progression from like confluence of rural to urban settings and that kind of conversation. And as you reflect on jazz today and it octopuses out to all these different areas and maybe embraces other cultures, you know, what are your reflections on that? I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things going on, and jazz from a very early period started moving all around the world, particularly in the 30s and 40s. But 
you know, it's become a certain kind of norm that people are playing jazz in South Africa or East Africa or Europe in all sorts of different ways. What I've been listening to personally, more than anything else, are a couple of South African jazz musicians, Malcolm Chiani, a trombonist, and Ndudu Makathini, a pianist. And that music, I think, is really interesting. And I mean, it's identifiably jazz from an American tradition, but it has a certain kind of difference to it in terms of rhythm. And I find it very compelling and very interesting. So jazz will never be the kind of popular music it was in the 1930s or even the 1960s. But it seems to me in terms of what people are doing with the form and what people are doing in terms of performance, there's just a lot of great performers out there. The trumpet player Ambrose Akinmuzera and Steve Coleman, not, you know, not a new name figure in jazz, but also when I think of people doing the most interesting things with time and rhythm, I think Steve Coleman is definitely one of those people. Uh, oh, yes. There's so many surprising elements. And sometimes you don't, well, let's say if one is thinking about traditional jazz, you think that's not jazz, but wow, it has all these it's not the jazz of thought I grew up thinking of, but, you know, I interviewed Emma Castaneda, who's a jazz harpist. And this is, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a jazz harp and the, the Colombian rhythms. And so it's very surprising and lively in, in all these different avenues. Yeah. So, but in this period that you more deeply focus on, you mentioned Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong, Bessie Smith, Duke Ellington, you know, just tell us a little bit about your personal playlist and the literature that you consider alongside it. Yeah. You know, before I started writing the book, my strong identification was with a lot of music from the late 1950s and the 1960s, particularly the music of Miles Davis. So then when I started thinking about what is the music of the 20s, it took a while for my ear to adjust. At first, I was like a little bit put off, but actually you get into it, it's really interesting and it has its own kind of rhythm. Of course, recording quality is so different from the 20s and it takes a while for your ear to adjust to that. But the two recordings I focus on in the book are one recording by James P. Johnson, who I don't think is quite as well known as he probably should be in terms of American history or music history. And then a recording which has both Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith performing St. Louis Blues. But James P. Johnson is a figure whose music I really grew to love and is so compelling in terms of his place in the history of New York. And so one of the things you'll hear people talk about during the 20s in the Harlem Renaissance are rent parties. Right? So then, like now, people are worried about how to pay the rent, sadly. But one of the things that came out is like, okay, we don't know how we're going to pay the rent. So let's get some music and some food and we'll charge admission right? and we'll raise enough money for the rent at the end of the day. And so you have to have music there. Right? And so James P. Johnson was considered to be the king of Harlem rent parties. Right? So if you could get James P. Johnson come and sit down at a piano, voila, you instantly have like a social event. And an economic event, too, because you're making money off of it to pay rent. So I think that is really fascinating music. And it has such a strong, powerful rhythm to it. And a lot of it was oriented towards dancing. But that music is really powerful to me. And it's music I didn't really know before I started thinking about the 20s. The other thing you asked me before about the history of or the relationship to African music. And there's an interesting connection with James P. Johnson. Uh, because he played at a certain bar in New York City where you would have all these you know, dock workers from the Georgia Sea Islands, which, of course, is the place that has retained the most kind of Africanisms in speech and music. And these uh, workers from, you know, the Georgia Sea Islands would have these distinct ways of dancing. And James P. Johnson would watch as he was playing and he'd figure out certain kinds of rhythms and patterns to play to go with their dancing. And that, you know, became integral to his style. And of course, the Charleston, right, you know, is kind of a cliched Hollywood marker of the 20s. But it's a, before it's anything else, it's a performance by James P. Johnson. He created the Charleston. And it's created by this New York pianist, right, looking at these people from a rural Southern African-American community with strong Africanist traditions of dance and looking at it saying, oh, how can I get that into, you know, the piano so I just find that a really interesting and powerful example of music reacting to the kind of reality right around it. Right? So it's as if in a certain way, these unnamed dock workers you know, become part of the composition of James P. Johnson's music. 
Yeah, it's so interesting that and the way that music is produced now, it's very hard to have that regional signature, like those elements of a mirroring life is not always so evident. Yeah, there's something to be said for a kind of analog face-to-face encounter of one musician or one dancer facing another person in that kind of live moment. And, you know, that, of course, I think is what the brilliance of jazz performance is about. You get three, four, however many people up on stage, and they have some idea about what might happen, but they're basically alive to the human differences in the moment. And so if the bass player does something different, then the saxophonist, the pianist has to respond in real time. There's no time. You don't filter it. You have to figure out how to adjust yourself to it in the moment. And so, yeah. And you spoke about these rent parties. And this is a kind of, it's wonderful about art stepping in to help with survival. I think on the other side of that, say that the jazz age is reflected through a wealthier lens of the novels and stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. I mean, of course, the 20s is this moment when jazz takes on a wide significance. And at a certain point, you know, you'd have to ask exactly what jazz meant to different people because it has a different significance. And I think if we went back and listened to some of the music from the 20s, we might say, oh, well, that's not really jazz. But Fitzgerald is definitely responding to jazz in a way that is both limited by certain assumptions about a race, but also he understands that it's a profound challenge to the way in which time Uh, He knows that something is changing in the 20s and that jazz is a serious rival to the novel, right? In the 19th century, the novel is perhaps the most prestigious artistic or aesthetic form. You say what articulates national or human experience in the most powerful way? It's in the 20s, right? There are all sorts of challenges to the novel. Cinema is, of course, one, but jazz is another. So when Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby is thinking about the jazz at Gatsby's parties, he's also thinking about a rival aesthetic form. Jazz has got a different way of configuring time, and he's both fascinated by it, and he sees it as a certain kind of challenge because, of course, it's so different from the way in which the novel traditionally articulates time. So then if we think about the way in which uh, The Great Gatsby as a modernist novel diverges from 19th century predecessors, right? one of the things is we would think about his response to jazz, not only in the way in which it's represented in the novel, which I guess is important enough, but more in terms of like looking at a different cultural form as a different way, a suggestive, but also threatening way of shaping time and the way in which that enters into the form of the novel. And to speak of another like important, like modernist figure like Nella Narsen, I d- just expand upon why she is such an important figure. Well, I think one, she's just a brilliant novelist. And I think she's starting to get more recognition now, particularly for her novel passing. Unfortunately, for all sorts of different reasons, she only produced two novels uh, during her lifetime. But passing in quicksand, you know, I think that is without a doubt some of the finest writing of the modernist period. And, you know, she's getting at something from a totally different perspective than Fitzgerald. And for me, the interesting text is quicksand because it shows a couple of engagements with jazz. And there's a certain point in which the protagonist of quicksand dances to music in a cabaret. And it's described as uh, jungle music. So we would think of Duke Ellington's jungle music band of the 1920s. And we would also notice the kind of reactionary racial ideas that go with labeling something as from the jungle. And so there's a way in which jazz is trying to be, America's responding to jazz by containing it, thinking of it as something kind of primitive. But this is something that's codified or, you know, thematized in Nella Larson's novel, right? The protagonist goes in here and one, she's like, the music drives her with a certain kind of intensity something like ecstasy that's, you know, really unparalleled throughout the rest of the novel. And so it's exciting and it moves her in a certain way. But she knows that if she becomes part of this jungle music, she will be figured as a certain kind of woman. And so then she's very aware of all the different racializing gazes that will want to, you know, prescribe her a certain kind of position. So she can't kind of enter into it. And she enjoys it for a couple of minutes, but then she has to flee to, she eventually moves to Denmark. So it's a great kind of codification of the way in which jazz is both exciting and opens all sorts of possibilities, but in terms of the way it's reacted to and the way it's described in terms of marketing it and the way in 
terms of which it's labeled. There are all sorts of racial assumptions, including primitivism, that work to kind of limit recognition of its sophistication and its brilliance and its importance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm in such awe of improvisation. It's not all improvisation, of course, but that's one right. strong element. And I'm in such awe of it that sometimes people don't have an understanding that, that it's so sophisticated. Like you have to really know a lot to improvise. To be that free, you have to first have practice, 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 right? Yeah, I mean, of course, right? And to me, when I think about the most amazing things that humans can do, like high-level jazz musicians... The amount of information that they're processing, uh, harmonic, melodic, rhythmic information all on the spot. And not only, you know, kind of taking it in and figuring out where they fit in it, but also responding to it and creating something with a certain kind of form and meaningfulness to it all in the moment. I think that's one of the most impressive things that I've known any human being to do. And so, you know, that's worth thinking about in terms of human capacities. And it's also, of course, going back to this idea that music is sophisticated as something like that Duke Ellington would create was labeled as jungle music in the 20s is a sign of the way in which, you know, race was and continues to be a way in which all sorts of human creativeness and inventiveness and intelligence is, you know, under-recognized or dismissed. Just expanding upon improvisation and the complexity of it. And sometimes people think, oh, there's no kind of technique in it. It seems like a technique that's so quick that even they can't keep track of it, right? Right, right. Of course, it's important to recognize that there are these eight, eight measure or 12 measure or sometimes other, but those are the most common sections that are repeated. And there's a lot of stuff that's just repeated over and over again. And then within that repetition, the kind of repetitive form, and you, you know, practiced it hundreds, thousands of times, and then you kind of intuit it. And within that, then you can do all sorts of different things. So I think you're absolutely right to point out the way in which there's a great deal of practice and preparation that allows for the creativity in the moment. And I would just say that, you know, that kind of treatment of repeated sequences with the possibilities for change and creativity and improvisation. If you think about it in those terms, then you get a kind of sharper sense of the way in which jazz is entangled with the way in which people live their lives or might be more of a model for how people live their lives. Because of course, you know, we've all got these repetitive rhythms. Some of them are called the week. Some of them are called the month and all sorts of things like that. But within those forms, jazz would suggest there are all sorts of opportunities for you know, creating something vital and new and different. And so I think it's not just about the new and the made up on the spot, but it's this articulation of the creative newness with continuity. Uh, you repeat the same thing over again and it creates a certain kind of continuity. And of course, that's important for both dancing and listening and, you know, life in general. Right? So it's just really interesting model for how to coordinate continuity repetition with improvisation or, you know, the new, the surprise, the contingent. It's interesting of jazz as a kind of reading, internal reading of yourself in the moment, a kind of autobiography that has a structure, but is not an artificial structure that is imposed on it. It's more like a, like a breathing but it, you know, of course, with all the uh, musical artistry, as I mentioned, I was speaking with Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records the other day, and he said that he had asked Miles Davis, because he was cheeky and young at the time, and he says, he asked him, Miles, why do you play so many bad notes? <laughs> and Miles Davis said, I mean, he doesn't play that bad notes, but he mean, they're risking yeah, bad course. notes or something. And he, he said, well, I don't just play what I know I can play. I play what I hear in my head. Yeah. No, I think when you were talking about Louis Armstrong, uh, the story of Louis Armstrong dropping music and creating scat, you know, that's that genius of music, right? And there's an interview with Herbie Hancock and Herbie Hancock refers to this one episode when he was playing with Miles Davis all the time, where Miles played something that sounded like a wrong note. But then what Herbie Hancock points out is that Miles took that and made it into something else. And it was an opening onto some other kind of pathway, right? So something that doesn't fit could be kind of an opportunity. And so if you follow the lines laid out by the dominant form of the novel, there's not really space for accidents or surprises for being opportunities. 
Because if you kind of know where you're going, if you're headed towards this future of redemption at the end of the novel, then any divergence has to be something wrong or an accident. And so I think, you know, I love the novel and I think all sorts of people do interesting things with the form of the novel. But this temporality in which there's a kind of future horizon towards it, which everything is directed, I think has all sorts of pernicious effects on the way in which people live. So if you have this sense like, oh, I have a destiny or I know where I'm going or I'm going to pay off my mortgage in 30 years or I'm going to heaven, there are all sorts of different forms of positing a future horizon to which we're directed. Then one can't take opportunity of the surprising, the contingent or the accidental. And also, if you encounter something, some other person or some other rhythm or some other instrument, and they're doing something that you don't expect, there's a tendency to either dismiss that or see it as a threat, right? So I think there's a real kind of social implication to the ways in which we understand time. And if we wet ourselves too much to this idea of a future horizon, then it creates a certain kind of hostility to difference. And I think if, you know, went into it enough, you could think about some of the kind of, you know, racial violence and racial hostility, of course, is blatant and brutal in the 1920s, but still characterizes American existence today. Part of that has to do with the mainstream sense of time is one that is not happy with the accidental or the contingent, right? So if we were more jazz shaped as a society, if we had the kind of temporality of the brilliant performances of Miles Davis or Louis Armstrong, then when things were unexpected or somebody did something, you know, they spoke or had a rhythm of social living that was different, we would say, oh, that's an opportunity. And that, that is a possibility for some other, you know, construction of myself and construction of, you know, meaning. Right? So I think if you start to think about the difference between a jazz-based celebration of contingency and the accidental versus a certain kind of novel-based investment in a future horizon, there's a real sharp difference that is not only cultural and aesthetic, but is tied to life and in a certain sense, politics. Yeah. And yeah, being able to accept shifts or in the novel, fast forward to like William S. Burroughs and the cut-up technique, which again, yeah. disorientating yeah. effect. Yeah. You know, there are all sorts of different novels that do really interesting things with a contingency and with a certain kind of form of repetition uh, that is great and actually comes close to this kind of jazz aesthetic of temporality. Of course, obvious reference is Toni Morrison's Jazz. That's a brilliant novel. And there's a narrator who at the beginning says, oh, I know what's going on. And near the end, the narrator is like, oh, I was totally wrong. So it's like the way in which Toni Morrison has taken the form of the novel and made it into a form in which the whole novel itself is surprised by itself, I think is really fascinating. And of course, I mean, it's obvious that it's modeled partially on jazz. I mean, Morrison always called that in interviews her finest novel. And I think it is a little bit underrated, although it's hard to argue with Beloved or the more well-known Morrison novels. But that moment, you know, near the end of the novel is so kind of brilliant. So I wouldn't want to say that novels are incapable of embracing this form of repetition and embrace contingency. And that's actually one of the things I was trying to get at with the book is when jazz comes on the scene in a powerful way in the 1920s, all the novels react to it in one way or another. So when I think of James Weldon Johnson and Ernest Hemingway and Nella Larson, we can think about a variety of different ways in which all these novelists responded both positively and negatively to this new form of temporality created by jazz. But I don't want to overgeneralize and I don't want to dismiss the novel because the novel is a brilliant form. And speaking of other literary or oral forms, and you addressed jazz's power if we embraced it to create a greater social cohesion or acceptance or adaptability to a changing landscape, there is the literary or the rhetorical form of speech writing, which can rise to the level of music. Do you have some reflections on that and how they might have drawn from jazz rhythms or, you know, the most powerful ones? Yeah, I don't know if I do, but of course, I mean, Zero Neil Hurston was a great Harlem Renaissance writer who was very much in tune with oral traditions. And I think of her novel, Jonas Gordvine, right, in which the central character is this preacher, right? And he is this master of creating these improvised uh, sermons, right? Drawing on a recognizable African-American tradition, but doing new things with them. And so, you know, she's a figure writing a little bit after Nella Larson and F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's incorporating these forms into the novel. 
And it's hard to argue with the brilliance of other novels. The other figure that I would think of is uh, Tony K. Bambara, you know, great novelist and short story writer and actually filmmaker also. I mean, she did so many different things from the late 60s and the 70s. And I'm very partial to a group of short stories gathered under the title Gorilla, My Love. And I think there's a certain jazz influence there. And there's a couple of short stories that have jazz in them. But she combines what you might call a certain kind of sophisticated literary style with attentiveness to orality in a way that I think is really brilliant. So, you know, I think a lot of times those things line up, what you're suggesting, a certain kind of literary form that is very open to, shaped by, or responding to kind of oral forms and jazz. And I would put the two things together under the heading of listening. And so it's kind of a word we use all the time. I'm listening to you and I'm listening to this, but I think a real honest, open listening to something in all its kind of nuances and its timber and its kind of multidimensionality is a little bit rare. So it takes some work to get yourself into a space where you can really hear what somebody else is saying or the kind of improvised jazz music or something like that. If we're thinking about what a rich literature like that of Larson, Langston Hughes, or Morrison, or what the brilliant music of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington teach us, I think they teach us a certain kind of mode of listening. You have to be attentive because something might surprise you or something might go in a different direction at any kind of moment. So there's a certain kind of listening, I think, that comes both out of the music and out of the literature, and I think is perhaps one of the most important things one could get from any art form. And I'm listening quite broadly, not just, you know, stuff coming through the ears, but our kind of response to the world, whether it's visual or written or whatever. Yeah, I wonder, there's a few things, and I do want to go into the role of faith or the interplay between faith and jazz, but also you spoke about if we hear what the other person is saying or what the musician is saying, and there's also that expression, I see what you're saying, and the correlation hasn't been drawn a lot, but abstract expressionism draws largely on jazz. Right. Yeah, it's always interesting when people say, I see, you know, as this kind of metaphor. And there have been a number of thinkers who point out the way in which we have as a both like kind of European derived society kind of bias towards vision. And if we said, I hear what you're saying, or in terms of understanding something, I hear it, I get it, I see it. If we said, I hear it, that would be different. And so when you hear something, it, one is slower because sound waves are slower than light waves. Light waves give you this idea. It's not true, but it's this idea that it's almost instantaneous. When you see something, you also think of yourself as more detached from it. When you hear it, you're aware that those sound waves are traveling and they're striking your body and eardrums. So I think, you know, hearing in music as a metaphor for knowledge or understanding versus vision is productive, interesting. Yeah, of course. I mean, I love Jackson Pollock's paintings. And he was a well-known jazz fan. I think somebody went and um, cataloged his record collection. And I believe they released an album of some of the things that Jackson Pollock was listening to. It's interesting that I think that he was listening to music from an earlier era. Like he was more of a swing boutique than the kind of contemporary music you would think of Ornette Coleman playing at the five spot or something like that and kind of going on at the same time. But yeah, that's a rich kind of comparison. I've actually, I love this painting. I kind of read about it and I get it go see it whenever I get a chance. But I can't say that I have done much writing or thinking about it in terms of its relationship to jazz. Robin D.G. Kelly has a great book on Thelonious Monk. And one of the things that he does really well is he captures this moment when Thelonious Monk is playing at the five spot in 1957. And just the number of people that are coming there to listen to the music, like painters, writers, right? It's this real kind of nexus of, you know, intellectual and artistic crossing. It's kind of fantastic. But one of the things about jazz is each musician is always interested in the materiality of the sound. And some musicians say that they see colors also when they perform or when they're composing. It's this. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, synesthesia is a fascinating example, right? And so, yeah, it's like the thing that I think is really interesting about writing about music is that music doesn't really fit into words, you know? So it pushes you to be creative in how you think about it. And so you think about all these different analogies, like, well, what color, you know, is the Coltrane recording? But I think there's something really rich to be gained when you write about something that doesn't fit into writing, right? Because you realize that no matter how good you are with words, 
the words don't exactly capture what you want. So I think if you want to write about anything from an academic or any perspective, I think a certain kind of humility is important, right? You want to get it as closely as you can, but you have to recognize that you're not actually getting it, right? And so you think about when you write about music without words, you're like, it's pretty clear that you're not actually getting all the music into it. So I'm thinking about music and visual colors, all the different analogies or metaphors that we use to think about music. It, those are, I think, quite rich ways of approaching it. Yeah. I think it's very useful because we all perceive the world. Usually most of us have one or two primary senses where people have to translate it into their mode of, of thinking. I believe that we have these different strengths. And so it is very useful, even though, of course, it doesn't replace the music. It translates the music for those who maybe are maybe their primary sense isn't music, but that helps them really quantify the sense of awe and wonder that they experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think translation is a good way of thinking about it. And right? it's always, there's always something left out. And what you're trying to do is just create an engagement, a dialogue. And that was really important for me when I was thinking about literature and jazz, because before what I had read of most of the research before was how does literature represent jazz? i.e., you know, jazz is an object that literature then represents. But it seems if you really want to get at the resonance of literature and jazz, you want to think about the two of them in a dialogue, right? How does jazz talk to literature and how does literature talk to jazz? So I always think of that idea of call and response where antiphony is central to jazz, right? There's always this back and forth interchange between different mediums, different senses, different discourses. That, you know, I always try and keep in mind. And you mentioned the call and response. What is the interplay between jazz and the different, you know, religious traditions? Well, that's a good question. I mean, when jazz was emerging, it was a kind of avowedly secular music. And of course, mainstream white American churches and African-American churches were hostile to jazz, right? That's the devil's music. That's the stuff that happens on Saturday night versus the stuff that happens on Sunday morning. But of course, if you start looking at the uh, historical or biographical backgrounds of many jazz musicians, the majority of them grew up in churches or performed in the church. Right? So the church is a space of not only religious belief, but more importantly, perhaps for jazz, of musical ritual and of community. I think there's a continuity between the way in which jazz, when it works, and of course, there's a lot of jazz that doesn't work out well, as well as the kind of brilliant stuff that we love. It is translating some of that community uh, social effervescence, we might say, and kind of ritual power that is embodied in certain kind of African-American religious traditions. And it's getting it into the music. That's how I would think about it. In my experience of thinking about the jazz musicians whose biographies I know well, there aren't that many that actually are particularly committed to religious traditions. Now, of course, John Coltrane at a certain period in his life really thought of himself as a certain kind of spiritual seeker, right? And of course, you know, a love supreme is his kind of dedication of belief and dedication to a certain kind of deity. Now, whether it's a strictly Christian deity or not, right, it's definitely a, a certain kind of spiritual statement of faith. But I think that is something that really uh, more musicians are starting to think about in, in the 60s and less in the 20s and 30s. And there are those jazz musicians who are spiritual seekers. Also, you might just be able to hear like the church as a way of form getting your training, like yeah. also other artists doing works for the church or whatever to help them get their commissions. And also maybe just even if they weren't strictly religious, jazz does seem to be, you know, in being open to the mystery and being open to chance in some way an act of faith. Yeah, I think that's true. Now. I'm not a very religious person myself, and I have to say that my background growing up in a Lutheran church was not very exciting. So, you know, I think the different religious tradition that you come out of like, has a lot to do with it. So I think a lot of American forms of Christianity are about a certain kind of transcendence, not necessarily just getting beyond what's around you, but getting to some kind of space in which you leave the body behind. And those traditions, I don't think, fit very well with the kind of jazz celebration of corporeality and sensuality and things like that. So I think it's different forms of Christian tradition within the United States that line up better with jazz. And certainly some of the kind of African-American traditions where there's a lot of shouting or shaking, so to speak, you know, kind of speak of a certain kind of 
embodied Jewish practice that fits better with jazz. But once you start to talk about religion, it's a bit of it's a bit of a blind spot for me because partially because of my own background and partially because in the political situation in the United States right now, there's so many strong kind of reactionary forms of religion. You know, it's a bit of a mental block for me to kind of take, you know, think as seriously about religion as I probably should. So you know, speaking of faith, now you're you're currently writing about reggae, which is another transition, but and that has this interplay with Estefarian faith and also the common thread of social protest, uh, depending on you know which musicians uh, you're writing about. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've just finished a chapter on King Tubby, who is you know his birth name was Osborne Ruddock, but uh, of course he's well known as King Tubby, and what he's doing in the studio to produce certain forms of reggae. So this is in the middle of the 60s and into the beginning of the 70s, the golden era of roots reggae, so to speak. And, you know, not all of the practitioners are Rastafarians, but Rastafarianism has a powerful influence, partially because of the racial politics of Rastafarianism, right? It's a real reaction against the kind of colonial traditions of Christianity that were brought to or even opposed upon the populations of Jamaica you know, in the 19th century. So Rastafarianism is, it has a great deal of power to it in terms of the practitioners. Like, oh, here it is, right? And it's tied to a certain idea of Africa, right? You have these Rastafarian practices and you get together and you, you know, read a little bit of the Bible and you have your reasonings and there's some drumming, right? There's a certain kind of sense of musical rituals associated with the religion that translate really well right into the music. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the kind of rhythmic attunement to the world and a certain kind of religious worldview. Uh, the interesting thing about King Tubby's music for me, like a lot of dub reggae, is the idea that the producer or the band or the recording will pull something away from you at any moment, right? You're grooving to the bass and the drums, and then all of a sudden they're pulled out from under you and you kind of float in this certain kind of space. And so that has a really powerful musical effect. And I don't know if I would describe that as a kind of religious experience, but it does create a certain kind of visceral, almost ecstatic experience of change or loss, right? It surprises you and it pulls things away from you. So in dub reggae, the possibility is that at any moment, something could disappear from the mix, right? Some instrument could be kind of, you know, by the twisting of a knob on the studio and it's a very studio-based music, right? It creates this idea of like, okay, Right, there it is. And it's gone. And then, but in dub reggae, this disappearance of something or its reemergence or if it's transformation in something else, it's never something to be lamented. It's always an occasion for a surprise or joy or a different kind of listened or danced response to the music. And that I think is really interesting, taking this possibility of something disappearing or vanishing, right? And making that into something to be celebrated aesthetically, if not, you know, socially. And of course, it has a certain kind of connection with jazz. It turns out that uh, Osborne Ruddock, a.k.a. King Tubby, was a big jazz fan. And so the way in which he thought about how the studio was itself a creative instrument, right? you were improvising when you were creating recording rather than just kind of faithfully recording what was already written down. And jazz has this tradition, especially in the music of the 1920s, in which you create this thing called a break. Right? So you have a 12-bar phrase, and then the bass and drums and piano or whatever's creating the rhythmic foundation, they play for 10 measures and then they stop. And the soloist is left on their own, right? In this abyss or gap for two measures. And that's this tremendous occasion for creating something brilliant, right? Albert Murray writes really well about this. He calls it heroic moment. That's when you get to write your signature on the epidermis of reality, he writes. And that's very sharp, but that's really very close to the kind of experiences that dub reggae is creating. You're, you have a certain kind of groove going along and then it goes away. So there's a break or there's a surprising sound. And so this kind of taking pleasure in a fact that there's disruption or that something you take for granted could fall out from underneath your feet at any moment. That to me is a really interesting musical experience. And I think a really profound sense of rhythm and time. Outside of the, those musical forms, usually we think of something disappearing or breaking down as something to be you know, it's panic or sad, right? But to an attach a positive affect or emotion to those experiences of something being taken away, I think it is incredibly rich. And you're presently in Oslo? Yeah, I'm at the University of Oslo. I still go back and forth. It's actually interesting. Most of the music I've seen here has been American jazz because they're on the circuit. And so there's a good 
jazz club, national jazz scene. There are some very good Norwegian jazz musicians, and it's quite interesting to me to hear European jazz. I like it. I like a lot of it. I do feel like some of it gets away from this thing that I really think is really interesting, this kind of experience of a certain kind of rhythm that has this feeling of possibility and kind of intensity to it. And there's some of it that kind of veers more towards a certain kind of classical music tradition. I'm not opposed to that, but I'm just saying it's a different kind of experience of how it works. But yeah, it's a very conducive place to live and teach. And I've taught courses on jazz and African-American literature here that have gone well. And as you think about the future and education and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve? And I think just this idea that the future actually is open. You know, I don't think we do enough to think about the openness of the future, the way in which it could be almost anything, right? And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think is important about the strongest novels and the strongest forms of jazz. And it teaches you on a kind of visceral level that time is possibility, right? We live within these temporal forms and it's easy to forget that they're created by humans, right? But we create time every day, whether we accept getting to class on nine o'clock or not, we're part of these rhythms. And so Chaz says, yes, this is you, and it could be shaped otherwise. And I don't think we do enough in education to ask students to think about all the different things that might happen in the future. And I think we're a little bit too much focused on learning certain things from the past. And I think it's important to get that idea of the possibility, right? That is kind of the idea that every present moment is also a possible opening. Now, of course, there are all sorts of forces that stand in the way of that. And those are not the most pleasant things, but that's the one thing that I think of more than anything. Well, thank you, Bruce Evan Barnhart. You're a wealth of knowledge and opened our minds to how we do create time. So uh, thank you for that and opening our minds also to the possibility and intensity of jazz, sharing your insights into its, the dialogue between jazz and literature and the whole five senses and the importance of the arts to reflect our times and bring about social change. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you very much. It was uh, great fun. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Caitlin Keyes. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.